Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining the Great Dynamics Podcast. My name is Ahmed Hassal. Today, as always, we have a very interesting guest, Samuel Bendet. He is an advisor with the CNA Strategy Policy Plans and Program Center, where he's a member of the Russia Studies Program. He's also an adjunct senior fellow at the Center for New American Security. Uh, his work involves research on the Russian defense and technology developments, unmanned and autonomous military systems, and artificial intelligence, as well as Russian military capabilities and decision-making during crises. It's much more interesting maybe than I'm saying right now, but we'll get into that. And he's also an honorary math scientist, which is very cool, with the U.S. Army Trade Dogs Math Scientist Initiative, which I've tried to send some of my work, but I always chicken out at the last moment. But thank you so much for, for joining us, Samuel. Yeah, it's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on. So, Sam, in your own words, can you talk a little bit more about yourself? Yep. I joined CNA Russia Studies program back in 2016. I was one of the first hires for the Russia Studies program uh, because obviously after 2014, after the Russian seizure of Crimea and Russian involvement in Eastern Ukraine, and then Russia's involvement in Syria, it became very clear that the United States was dealing with a, with a very different Russian military than between, uh, let's say, 1990s and 2014. And so there was a need for more analysis into the Russian military capabilities, Russian defense capabilities, how Russia decides to fight, why it decides to fight, how it prioritizes military weapons development. And so CNA expanded its existing Russian studies program and, and began bringing in more analysts. And so I was brought on in 2016. From 2018 onwards, I was very interested in and sort of became one of the key researchers on my team into the Russian military autonomy, artificial intelligence, robotics, and unmanned systems. And it was a very interesting research journey because looking into the Russian defense and ex experimental space, into the uh, research and development that Russian military does on these technologies has now been uh, juxtaposed against its actual performance in Ukraine. And uh, questions are raised whether or not some of these investments have um, paid off, whether they were applicable to this war, how far Russia has gone in a lot of its investment in these key technologies, and what is the path forward for the Russian development of and the evolution of military robotics in general. In fact, Russian media and Russian military analytical space inside Russia likes to use the word robotics as a sort of a catch-all phrase for anything that's not uh, directly piloted by a human. And so I started writing and speaking about Russian research and development into robotics and artificial intelligence. And that work translated into our support for um, then the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center, which is the DOD's research and development institution that looked into artificial intelligence and automation and robotics in general. And so for two and a half years, me and my Russia Studies program team were conducting open source, unclassified research into Russian developments of AI and autonomy. In fact, all of that research is on our website. It's a public website, cna.org. I will send you the link so you can give it to your listeners. And we wrote a report back in May of 2021 that highlighted all of the key developments in civilian and military AI and autonomy developments in Russia. It's a lengthy report. It's about 250 pages, but we find it a very useful reference point for going forward, for analyzing again, what Russia was working on, what it is working on, and what that future looks like for Russia now post-Ukraine war at some point. 
we're also writing, we were writing for two and a half years, bi-weekly newsletters on the same topic. So that every two weeks we would publish a newsletter with some of the key developments into AI and autonomy in Russia, both in the military and in the civilian space. And so that was sort of inaugural type of work. No one else was doing that publicly in the unclassified space. And so our organization was producing this material, obviously on behalf of the sponsor, but because it was public, it was also out there for the larger um, analytical space. Anybody who was interested in this topic would be able to read our uh, research. And so that involved Washington DC based and, and global think tanks and policy centers, involved academia, researchers worldwide. And so there was a lot of interest in this type of work. And I think there's still going to be a lot of interest in this type of work going forward. Prior to CNA, I worked for a national defense university for a number of years. That's one of the academic institutions, which are part of the Pentagon. It's based in Washington, DC. And I was a researcher into emerging and breakthrough technologies for government disaster response. I was looking into how new technologies like UAVs or social media were aiding how the government, Department of Defense and non-government sector work together to help people affected by natural and man-made disasters. And this is where I finally, well, I should say not finally, this is where I first got introduced to unmanned aerial vehicles because I was part of field experimentations in California, which utilized UAVs as sort of this intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance element of a disaster area. And this is where we were experimenting with different social media platforms and technologies to map out information as it was happening in real time in a disaster. And so that was very interesting work. And prior to that, I was interested in the larger Russia analytical space, sort of in the former Soviet Union space and in Russian politics, defense, social cultural issues, probably since graduation. So I stayed basically current on that for a number of years. And so all, all of that analytical background translated into eventually um, sort of my work at CNA Russia Studies Program, which is where I am today. And of course, I'm also an adjunct senior fellow on the CNAS uh, National Security and Technology team, where I'm ad hoc researcher on the topics that they're interested in, including adversarial technologies and autonomy and AI in Russia and other countries. Thank you so much, Samuel. It's like listening to what I'm all interested in and you're doing everything that I'm interested in. So that's really cool. I have so many questions. Well, go ahead. All right. Yeah. I will start very easy. The Gerasimov doctrine or non-doctrine, however we want to call it. It's a reflection. It's a, it's a Russian sort of reflection. It's a Russian reaction to uh, the Western, you know, to the Western analysis of how modern warfare is conducted. And it's not just conducted in the physical space. It's conducted in informational space, in cyberspace and uh, in other domains. And it's happening all at once. And so obviously, um, the individual who wrote about the doctrine has since publicly said that it's not really a doctrine, but it's useful. It's, it's a useful opportunity for us to see how Russian military understands its confrontation with and competition with the West. And so right now we're kind of watching that unfold in Ukraine, whether Russia actually understood these lessons and how it's applying them in practice against the very determined adversary. Wouldn't you say that the lessons that that should have been derived from this actually are being conducted by the Ukrainians. That's, that's a very good point. We are seeing when a well-educated, well-determined and well-supported cadre of officers and, and commanders 
as well as a military that understands sort of the needs of the soldier can do against a seemingly larger adversary and seemingly adversary that was supposed to be more powerful, but one that has not really incorporated a lot of these lessons downrange, down the line. And so it is Ukrainians that have seized the informational space. It is the Ukrainians that are operating very successfully on the ground and in the air. The Ukrainians have seized the initiative and using both military and civilian technologies like unmanned aerial vehicles and quadrocopters with great success. Ukrainians are also using Russian tactics like reconnaissance fire and reconnaissance strike contours, where airborne sensors like UAVs are providing targeted information in real time. We're seeing Ukrainians use very successfully other military aspects like special forces, a combination of different military units and combined arms operations. But of course, all of that goes back to the very opening days of the Russian invasion and what Russia has and has not planned for and what it did or didn't do. And a lot of that has already been analyzed. And of course, Russian invasion of Ukraine was made on a lot of mistaken assumptions, which resulted in initial battlefield losses, which then snowballed and dominoed into larger losses and exposed much larger issues within the Russian military, which as my colleagues on my team indicated, we wouldn't be able to see until and unless Russian military was involved in a large scale war. Because prior to that, we had Russian military fighting its small scale war in Syria, where it had a very small footprint, where it was fighting against an inferior adversary. And so Russia had the advantage of rolling out its aerial and, and ground assets. This is where Russia really kind of rolled out its military and ISR UAVs or intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance. Again, against an adversary that couldn't really conduct adequate air defenses or electronic warfare defenses or any other specific mass scaled operations against Russians. And so they had a very permissive environment for years. And then of course, parallel with that, the rest of the Russian military was constantly drilling and exercising. They were trying to utilize new weapons and systems. And so this is one type of military, but when all of that was thrown against an adversary that was very determined, very well-educated and very well prepared, a lot of the initial assumptions obviously did not, it, they did not really materialize into Russian military success because again, Russian military invaded Ukraine on, on, on a very different assumption and its military force initially wasn't really prepared for a mass scale warfare. And obviously the MOD leadership and the commanders at the highest levels, bear a lot of responsibility for that. But again, a lot of the Russian initial mistakes then snowballed into the situation that Russians are facing today where they're hard pressed by Ukrainians on, on two significant fronts. That's a very astute explanation because I wanted to ask you about Syria, but you already went into it. Is it maybe so that Russia or Russian leadership started to believe in their own mystique that they created around their special operations, the robotic space at those type of areas? Well, it's not just, it's not just its belief. I think what, what happened was a lot of the information, which again, we have to obviously assume that the Russian military intel was conducting adequate enough operations to collect enough information about the state and the status of Ukrainian military to possibly sound concern or alarm over the fact that this wasn't going to be the military that is just going to roll over. This isn't going to be the same campaign as in Syria. 
Ukrainians have been preparing for this for years. They've been training. They were getting Western assistance, American assistance, European assistance. This isn't going to be the military that is basically like the anti-Assad militias fighting in Syria. And a lot of that intel analysis probably was correct and on point, but it never made it up to the higher echelons, or perhaps it did. But a lot of the Russian decisions about this war were made for political reasons, not necessarily for military reasons. So I think we'll be analyzing this space for years to come. It's very difficult right now to make any definitive conclusions, but it mm -hmm. looks like even if D had actionable, correct intelligence, he was probably sidelined in favor of reports that portrayed Ukrainian situation the way Kremlin wanted to see it, not the way it actually was. Mm. And so this resulted in the decisions made at the initial days of the war where the Russian military thought its invasion of Ukraine is going to be just a walk in the park. Is it the wrong assumption to say that, maybe I'm not phrasing it correctly, but is it the wrong assumption to say that the way that the Russians conducted the invasion of Crimea was, I mean, to a lot of strategists, it was very clever the way that was done. And then such a contrast with what happened now. And is it what you just said? Is that because Western intelligence, NATO intelligence was just better prepared and not caught off guard like the last time? Well, yeah, in, in many ways, the seizure of Crimea was a very different situation than the 2022 invasion of Ukraine. There was a lot of confusion in Crimea. A lot of uh, Ukrainian uh, military didn't know how to act. A lot of this was basically orchestrated by the Russians to create as much ambiguity as possible in their invasion of, of the peninsula. Russian military was able to disrupt Ukrainian communications and command and control structures to the point where Ukrainian soldiers weren't really ready or able to counter Russian military soldiers that were just basically outside of their military basis. And so it was just a very different situation. And of course, fast forward to that, this is a very harsh lesson learned by the Ukrainian military, and they were very well prepared this time for the Russian invasion across across the board. This just a very, very different military. And again, we, we have to ask, and we will be asking that question, how much did the Russian intelligence know? How much did they try to pass to the top? And what actually happened at the top when reports that probably portrayed a very accurate situation with the Ukrainian military were analyzed, right? What happened to that information and how that information was presented to the Russian president who ultimately gave the go-ahead. Yeah, I think there's a lot of books that will come and written by former or Ukrainian intelligence officers and their experiences, because I would love to, to have an insight to that. So you hear a lot about corruption within military, Russian military industrial complex on how money gets spent on certain technologies or, or basic, let's say the, the Ratnik modern warrior program that never gets to where it needs to go. Is that a reason, or is that one of the reasons why the Russian military, Russian army seems to be so unequipped? Well, there are different parts of the Russian military, right? And some parts of it are much better equipped than others, and they have much better supply chains uh, than the rest of the military. Yes, as, as I've mentioned um, earlier, we didn't know the full extent of Russia's military preparedness for the war that they were apparently preparing for. 
until they got involved in the war. And we also have to say that Russian military, Russian military preparedness for large-scale conflict was defensive in nature. They thought they're, they're going to fight more or less on their own territory against uh, technologically advanced adversary like NATO, and that this war would not last a very long time. As the Russian military switched from a defensive force that they were preparing for or, or drilling for into an offensive operation, it exposed a lot of issues and deficiencies that we didn't know existed earlier. Or perhaps if we did know about them, we didn't know their full scale. And that, of course, exposed a lot of issues within the command, exposed how much corruption has undermined this preparedness. It exposed the difference between those units that were ready and prepared, as well as the rest of the military that perhaps wasn't really as modernized as, as the official statements led to believe. And so all of that is kind of churning right now in the Russian media, in the Russian social media space on Telegram, uh, as people blame the Ministry of Defense and the higher echelons for mismanaging the war, mismanaging years of preparation and, and years of preparedness. And again, we probably won't know full extent of all of this until this conflict ends and we actually begin to analyze large amounts of data about the Russian military proper. But we obviously recognize now that there are significant issues and a lot of these issues have impeded Russia's own progress. And even if some parts of the Russian military were getting the adequate resources, they were getting the enough sort of technologies. The issue was always scaling up, scaling up these new achievements, these technologies, th these systems, so that they could be proliferated widely and evenly across all of the Russian military. And that's not what happened. Again, some parts of the military received modern equipment, other parts did not. But even the parts that received modern, modern military equipment and were supposed to fight well, like the forces in the Western military district also did not do that because of larger issues that preceded the Russian military invasion of Ukraine and the commands and the decisions made and not made right up until the very day of the invasion. I think a lot has been said and apologies if you were not expecting we would just go so much into Ukraine. It was not my intention, but it, I think it definitely explains your research interest and particularly, you know, Russian military development. And to that, why would Russia go to Iran to get, you know, self-loitering munitions? Well, these are very interesting questions. So why Iran, not China, right? Or why Iran in general? Mm -hmm. Well, Russia was supposed to, according to its own predictions, its own statements, probably its own plans, it was supposed to field a, a rather extensive lineup of combat and uh, loitering munition UAVs, as well as a large number of intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance UAVs that were supposed to be networked and linked together in the Russian version of uh, sort of multi-domain operations or net-centric operations. And all of those aerial warrant sensors were supposed to have a various a degree of autonomy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So these were the uh, plans that were highlighted in great detail in their writings by the military academies, by the military academics, by the Russian military researchers, because this is what the uh, new technology is for modern conflict, right? The importance of UAV cannot be understated. The importance of using military drones or practically any type of military or, or paramilitary operation is now completely enshrined and is organic to any type of combat. Anybody who is fighting anybody right now is probably going to utilize 
unmanned aerial vehicles or even commercial quadrocopters that were refitted for military operations. And so none of that was necessarily new. And Russian military in that regard was in lockstep with major developments around the world, developments that were taking place in the United States, in the West, in Israel, in China, in Turkey, and Iran, as these countries were developing their own sort of unmanned aerial vehicle assets to conduct different types of operations. And Russia went into the war in Ukraine with approximately 2,000 or so UAVs spread out across its services and military districts. Obviously, not all of those UAVs were used in Ukraine at once, but of those that were used, many were shut down by Ukrainians. Many were victims to electronic warfare. Many actually were lost to pilot error. And it became very apparent in the first months of this conflict that what Russia has is not enough, that its defense industry, despite years of conversations about the importance of combat UAVs, wasn't really capable of producing a lot of these UAVs at scale in large enough numbers to equip the Russian military with the capabilities that its own military said are absolutely necessary. And of course, this is also something we'll be analyzing for a very long time. A lot of it has to do with the state of the Russian military industry and the defense industrial sector and the reliance on imported components and the sanctions that have now hammered both the civilian and military economies, involves Russian military's production of key components and whether or not this type of production was enough, in fact, to meet all of the demand and to meet all the expectations outlined in Russian concepts and um, conceptual writing. And so once it became clear that Russia needs certain technologies it does not currently own or cannot produce fast enough to try and stop Ukrainian advances, they really had two choices. And those two choices were China and Iran, two countries with whom Russia maintains military industrial cooperation, countries where Russia exported its military technologies, countries which either openly or sort of in a, in a, in a more clandestine fashion probably support Russian military policies with respect to Ukraine, although that's also open to question with respect to China. And so only China and, I, and Iran have a UAV lineup that Russia needs and that Russia can get. And so it left really only two choices. China wasn't ready to transfer its combat UAVs or loading munitions to Russia because of um, Chinese own perception of this war, Chinese own views on their relationship with Russia and China's interaction with the United States and economic interdependencies and economic cooperation with the United States. China was probably concerned that it would be part to very heavy sanctions and a very uh, strong U.S. response if it were to transfer this type of military technology to the front that would be able to have immediate effect against the Ukrainian military. Iran, on the other hand, not only has been able to manufacture its own lineup of combat ISR and loading munition UAVs, they've been doing it for decades. And also they were able to do that while under significant U.S. sanctions that began in 1980s. So Iran has decades of experience uh, basically living under U.S. sanctions and those sanctions impact on its defense industrial sector. And despite all of that, they were able to manufacture a lineup of unmanned aerial vehicles. Iranian drones are relatively cheap. They may not be as sophisticated as U.S. or Israeli or even Turkish UAVs, but they're good enough. And we're seeing the impact and effect of those drones right now in Ukraine. 
as the Shahed 136 Lorient munition is able to evade Ukrainian defenses because they fly low and slow and they don't have a lot of metal components. So they're often difficult to, uh, to identify by radar. And so they're actually having an impact against mobile targets like long range artillery, as well as stationary targets like places in Odessa. And now we're seeing evidence of Mohajer 6 ISR combat drone, possibly providing navigation for these alluring munitions. Um, and we haven't seen other UAVs that the United States was discussing as part of the Iranian transfer to Russia, like Shahed 129 or Shahed 191, and perhaps other UAVs which may have been sighted in Ukraine, like Kodzi Asir and many others. In other words, in Iran, Russia has an available lineup that it could get relatively cheaply from a country that has also been able to survive U.S. sanctions, which is something I'm sure the Russian defense industrial sector is looking at very closely. What is the Iranian experience in trying to survive Western sanctions while at the same time growing their military capabilities? Also, Iranian drones have been prolific across the Middle East, operated by Iranian proxies against Western targets and against some of the U.S. provided air defense systems. So Russia wanted to get UAVs that could potentially penetrate uh, some of the defenses that were supplied to Ukraine by the United States and the West. And there's evidence that, again, there's already some success in that. And even though many of those Shahes were lost, many also made it through. On, on a side note to that, it almost seems that Russia was better prepared to deal with sanctions economically than militarily. Well, again, it's, it's a very complicated issue. Uh, when it comes to sanctions, we have seen the full extent of, for example, Russian commercial IT sectors reliance on imported technologies for both software and hardware. This is where we had the greatest amount of interdependencies between Russian companies and Russian organizations and Western companies or global companies in general. And when those, when those countries and products left abruptly in March of 2022, this has really affected a lot of the Russian civilian information and communication technologies market. And so Russian economy right now is in the process of trying to import substitute on the fly, trying to come up with domestic solutions for software and hardware, as well as trying to import some of those necessary solutions by various means, legal or illegal or gray means or via gray imports. The defense industrial complex likewise was dependent on, to a certain amount, on these imported components simply because they were available, simply because it was easy to, to procure them on the open market. There weren't really any limitations and oftentimes the initial exporter of these products didn't really know where these products would end up. And so the defense industrial sector was also part, now, is now part of the impact of the sanctions and they're also trying to survive and figure out how to move forward. It's a very interesting case. I don't think we haven't, I don't think we've seen any, anything like that on that scale. When sanctions were imposed on Iran and North Korea, it also showed how these countries' domestic efforts can try to evolve and survive. But obviously, uh, Iranian or North Korean ICT sectors are a fraction of Russia's, even though Russia's own ICT sector is a fraction of, of the West. And so a lot of the, a lot of what we're seeing right now is really unprecedented. And we probably won't know exactly what the impact is going to be until a few months or maybe even a few years from now. You, you mentioned earlier a couple of times, Turkey, their 
TB2 troll. Is it really as effective as, as the media is saying, or did it also get a little bit of that mystique around it of, of being, you know, very, very effective and changing the conflict between Azerbaijan and Armenia, Libya and Ethiopia. What, what is your opinion on that? Again, it's, uh, it's something that I'm, I'm monitoring. Uh, we have not seen the end of the impact of TB2 drones in this conflict or in other conflicts. I think there are different factors at play here that in places like Syria, Libya, and Nagorno-Karabakh, this drone had mixed success against some ground-based targets that were better defended versus some that were not well defended. I think um, the same may have happened in Ukraine in the initial months of the war when Russian air defense or Russian electronic warfare defenses weren't really well organized. And this is when TB2 had most success against Russian military columns or positions. Once Russians got their act together, once their electronic warfare and air defense and early warning radar capabilities improved, I think it became more difficult for TB2 to target Russian forces as before. And this drone moved from direct combat role to more of an ISR role where it could sight targets it can see targets up to 75 kilometers out and guide either and guide other assets, aerial assets, UAVs, or long-range artillery to target. Still, we see some TB2s actually penetrate Russian airspace, still conduct targets against them. We're also noting some losses of these drones against Russian air defenses. And so this drone isn't necessarily one that's flying very high or very fast as well. And so capable air defenses, capable electronic warfare defenses should be able to try and negate its impact. But because Ukrainian front is very large, it's uh, the largest military front since World War II, it is impossible to have continuous coverage. Continuous air defense, electronic warfare, early warning radar coverage across the entire front. And so there are gaps in that front. And that's what the Ukrainians are exploiting very successfully right now. At the same time, the fact that Bayraktar drone was able to fight what was supposed to be one of the strongest militaries in the world also created an effect that this drone could be invulnerable against more powerful, more powerful technologies. And so this, this Bayraktar effect with more and more countries buying it, I think is part of that. But again, this drone wasn't necessarily designed to penetrate very, very significant air defenses or electronic warfare defenses. It's a standoff weapon where it can operate, you know, dozens of miles from the contact line and provide significant informational assurance and assistance to other assets in the air and in the ground to strike targets. I think it, it, the, the hype it got, I mean, it, it did really well for business since it was sold everywhere. One thing I, I wanted to like circle back on, we talked a little bit about it, loitering munitions, as you spoke about the Shahed-136. On the other hand, we have the Switchblade. We wrote a little bit about that on the website. So if any of the listeners is interested in that, I've heard a little bit of a hit and miss about that solution. What does your research say on that and how do you view that, that, that platform? I think we still haven't seen the full effect of Switchblades on the battlefield. I think we see some evidence of them being used. We haven't necessarily seen mass scale use of these Switchblades, but again, Ukrainian war is also informational wire. So just because there isn't a picture or a video of certain technologies used doesn't mean it's not used in Ukraine. And so again, the switchblades were given to the Ukrainian military 
and perhaps they're using them with precision and very selectively against some of the key Russian targets, as opposed to, for example, Russians launching waves of these Shahed-136 and Landsat loading munitions against Ukrainian targets across the contact line. And going a little bit further on these loitering munitions, the component, and I think the other part of your, of your research, the, the, I mean, maybe AI is not the right word. I know that's been used, but the, the autonomous decision-making, where, where do you see that, where we are today at, and how is that development going? Are we moving more closer to a, and I know you've probably heard this a hundred times you know, like a Terminator type scenario or yeah, where are we with that? The state of the art. I think most countries and most military efforts are more or less on an, on an equal level in terms of artificial intelligence, not necessarily making its own decisions about what to strike and how to strike, but having a human in the loop and artificial intelligence acting as an assistant to a human operator as an assistant in decision-making, as an assistant in data analysis and data collection, which is, I think, where this is probably going to be more useful. We're very far from the Terminator scenario, although we do have to note that a lot of countries and a lot of um, their research and development efforts are basically pointing to the fact that they are preparing to eventually have unmanned and autonomous systems conducting most of the fighting with a human far removed from the front line. But whether or not that future arrives soon or not at all is a different story. So today's artificial intelligence is, is a tool for the warfighter. It is a tool for a commander. It is a tool for the headquarters to sift through a lot of data to make sense of the data and to connect disparate data elements in a more coherent understanding of the battle. Right. So this is kind of like the abstract definition of artificial intelligence in the military, in the Russian military is not unique in that respect. They also talk about artificial intelligence as a decision-making tool, as a data analysis tool for a human that is firmly in loop, at least for the near future. I think with respect to Ukraine, we're seeing some elements of that present. We're certainly seeing a lot more on the Ukrainian side, maybe because Ukrainians are publicly admitting that they're using elements of artificial intelligence for data collection and analysis, or because the United States is openly saying that they are providing artificial intelligence for some part of the Ukrainian war effort. Russians aren't necessarily speaking publicly about what they are and are not using. But just recently, one of the Russian military publications did a lengthy analysis of AI in military. And, they, and one of the sentences used was that both sides in this war are using artificial intelligence for data collection and understanding of information from disparate online sources, including social media. So it is very likely that the Russian military is using elements of artificial intelligence to sift through lots of open source information to help them make sense of what's happening on the ground. Of course, here we have to say that their use of advanced technologies like AI and their actual performance on the ground are rather divergent than, than convergent in this sense. And we have to understand why, and we probably won't have a definitive answer right away, but hopefully we'll get to analyze that sometime from now. First of all, where do you see the state of the art of, on hypersonic weapons and what role does AI play in the response to that? Well, all major countries are, are working on hypersonic advancements. Russia claimed before the start of the Ukrainian invasion that they were in the lead 
on hypersonic developments. Obviously, United States is working on that as well. And, uh, and China, I think if Russia had a lot of hypersonic weapons, it would probably use them in the war in Ukraine and probably use them with great efficiency. That hasn't happened. And so that indicates that Russia didn't have a lot of them, or maybe the capabilities that they were discussing weren't necessarily equal to the actual physical implementation of these weapons in a highly complex operational environment that is Ukraine. So we have to essentially assume that despite the resources spent on the war in Ukraine, Russia will continue to invest in hypersonic development as a standoff and asymmetric response to what is clearly the Western high-tech advantage in many weapons systems and tactics. And so I think I, I'm not studying hypersonics as closely as I'm studying unmanned and autonomous systems, but artificial intelligence as a data collection, data analysis ought to be able to pinpoint changes on the ground and uh, perhaps analyze the launch of a hypersonic missile versus the launch of a regular missile based on the data sets it has. And again, a lot goes into that as well, right? Artificial intelligence as a data analysis tool has to understand what it is that it's looking at. And so all countries, all militaries working on artificial intelligence development are also working on training their AI and machine learning on data sets. And Russian military has claimed occasionally that they were in fact working on multiple data sets to help their AI identify Western military targets or other aspects of war. But we don't have a lot of, we don't have a lot of details on that because that's where open source information ends. Or rather, I should say that's where open source collection stops. Yeah. That's interesting. It seems like, and maybe um, I'm, I'm not trying to be facetious, but it seems like a lot of what Russia says and, and reality do not really match up well, particularly in the war in Ukraine. Well, again, the, this war was conducted under very different assumptions, assumptions that ran counter to Russia's own concepts and tactics and their own meaning and preparedness. And so because the initial invasion was again, conducted under these wrong assumptions, it resulted in the situation that Russian military finds itself in. And as analysts of Russian military will be looking at, again, what decisions were made and not made, what intelligence was and was not shared, how Ukraine was analyzed by the Russian military, what they thought was important to know and why they made certain decisions in the opening days and weeks of the war. I think there obviously, and as it should, there's a lot of attention on the, the Ukraine war. What are technologies in your opinion, because it seems like the situation in between China and Taiwan has kind of died down, even though they're still conducting exercises and we haven't really talked a lot about China. And I know that's, that's not particularly your expertise, but what are technologies that you say could be game changers? Well, as you know, that I'm not a. I'm not a China specialist, so I, I wouldn't yeah. want to go yeah. you know, far in that direction. There are other people you can talk to who are really, really deep into the, in the China military analysis, but it looks like similar technologies like unmanned aerial vehicles, long range missiles, precision guided missiles, long range strategic aviation are all going to play a significant part in how the Taiwan war does or does not break out. Do you have any opinions on the Nord Stream sabotage? Well, it's. 
it's something that I'm going to reserve judgment as, as we get, I think more and more information what actually happened and then we'll be able to make more definitive conclusions, but I'm not a pipeline person, so I don't know mm -hmm. a lot about what actually transpired down there. No. Okay. But what I wanted to ask you, any, any advice that you could give somebody who wants to become a researcher or was interested in this space that you're interested in, which is a very cool space, I think. I think the main advice would be stay current and stay curious, really find something you're interested in and find out more about it, educate yourself on it. And again, stay current because military technology development moves at a very rapid pace. And sometimes there's a very significant difference in capabilities that can really mature in a very short amount of time. So if you're interested in the space, try to read as much as possible, try to read different sources. I try to read sources, which sometimes are contradictory on a specific topic. So you can understand how different types of analysis evolves and develops, but stay curious about this topic. Stay curious about technologies, about the people behind the technologies, about the people behind the research and development effort, about countries' investments in specific types of military technologies and how those countries are choosing to utilize this technology in a conflict. Mm, very good. And what are you reading? What are you watching? What are you listening to? I'm actually reading a lot of military publications right now. I'm not reading a book right now, but I'm reading a lot of industry journals on, uh, on manned systems, autonomous systems, on, on military aviation. And I'm watching a number of things right now, but I will talk about that in another podcast. <laughs> All right, fair enough. Thank you so much, Samuel. It was super interesting. And I, this was as much for me as it was for the audience. And thank you for, for making time. And I really appreciate it. And for anybody listening, we will add in the show notes where you can find Sam's work and, and particularly on Twitter where he's active. And I see you guys next week. And thank you for joining us. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me.